Welcome to the Jack Daniels Show, a new show every Tuesday. Giving you a shot of unconventional opinion. No filter. No nonsense. No political correctness. Tune in for real talk. Okay. So, wait, you said there's a lot about election. Yeah. Um, particularly the prospect of a court packing. What's court so, packing? Okay, well, oh. do, you know about, do you know how the Supreme Court in America works? Ah, yes. So... Basically, when someone dies, um, you have to replace them, but it's a lifetime term. Is that correct? It is lifetime. Yes. Right? Yes. There is nine of them. Yes. And one has just died. And so they are trying to replace that missing seat. And I think there is contention about how, you know, the next presidential term is very important because I think four of the, you know, eight alive are pretty much really old and could potentially bugger off as well. Right. <laughs> but um, that's not, um, well, that's, that's the only possibility, but um, there's another issue. So today, uh, Amy Coney Barrett actually did get confirmed. So now there are, it's back to nine Supreme Court oh, okay. justices. Cool. So there is now a slight conservative majority. Right, um, like five to four. Five to four. Um, having said that, this, that's one of the annoying things about America is that it's not actually meant to be partisan role. Like in Australia, the high court, which is our highest court, it's not a mm-hmm. partisan role. It's a purely technical role where all you need to do is explain what the constitution says not what you think the constitution should say, not what you wish it says, um, but what it actually says. But that's not really the case in America. Yeah, I heard they got a lot more power back in the olden days. Um, I forgot which, which president it was, but apparently like the president and like had basically a brother or like a stepbrother or, or something along the line, like on oh no, a brother-in-law, I think. And basically the brother-in-law, I believe, was you know, the most powerful, you know, Supreme Court person. Um, like, ba- that basically gave them all the power. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know this story, actually. Really? I, I don't know anything about this. president it is, but I, I heard on a podcast pretty much. Just kind of thought the Supreme Court justice sort of popped out of thin air, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, so, so it, came, it popped out of thin air because um, the two brothers were just trying to deck it out with one another. Really? I need, yeah. you, need to, you need to link me. Yeah, but, okay, um, I'll link you to it. But uh, basically, um, like Australia, the, the Supreme Court justices' uh, interpretation of the Constitution is binding, right? Mm-hmm. And But unlike Australia, there's this thing that they have um, that, uh, called judicial activism. Okay. Judicial activism is where the Supreme Court justice doesn't is being a little bit disingenuous about what they think, well, what they claim the constitution says. So they basically reinterpret the constitution to whatever they wanted to say. Yeah. Isn't it the term not constitutional? Like unconstitutional? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, the, the thing is anything that the Supreme Court justices, if, if it's, if the Supreme Court, um, if the Supreme Court decides that the Constitution says something, even if it doesn't, 
then that's what the constitution says. Right. Right. They're the ones meant to be calling out laws when they're unconstitutional. And they do that, but they do make um, certain exceptions for certain positions um, where they will claim that the constitution says something that doesn't actually say. And, but when, and once they say that, that's the law. That's how the, the constitution must be interpreted. Um, so a classic example of this is a burger film when this back in 2015 mm-hmm. when the United States, when the Supreme Court decided that the constitution guaranteed the right to same-sex marriage. Right. Okay. Now, does the constitution of America, written in 17, whatever, guarantee the right to same-sex no, marriage? It not. does not. It does not. Right. So the correct way to go about things is through the legislature. Yeah. Right, which is to change the law, the federal law, to change state laws one by one, whatever. Um, which is what they were in the process of doing. Each state was in the process of making that call on its own, mm-hmm. independently. Um, but the Supreme Court at the time decided that the Constitution actually guarantees it, and so went. So they basically completely cut through the legislature. Yeah. It's completely irrelevant now. Um, and they just made it federal law completely um, unchallengeable. Wow. Okay. Right. So that's the kind of uh, power they have. So th- that's called judicial activism. They also call it legislating from the bench because, like, they mm. sit on a, on a bench, right? They're not meant to be legislators. Um, so when, when they do that, we say that they're legislating from the bench. Right. Okay. So that's more of a big thing in America than it is here. That's not to say they do this all the time. In fact, the majority of the time, um, they're, they're actually all in agreement, conservative or liberal, it doesn't matter. Um, that's why America still has you know, these gun laws, right? Mm-hmm. Because every time some state tries to restrict gun ownership, the Supreme Court strikes it down. Oh, really? Why is yes. that the case? Because it's, it's just too clear in the Constitution. And there's too much, there's too much precedence. And they, they can't say, oh, the constitution actually allows for the infringement of the right to bear arms when it says in the second amendment, the right to bear <laughs> arms shall not be infringed. They, right. So they, 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 there are limits to what they can do and what they're willing to do as well. It's pretty um, insane how like that piece of paper is, is kind of dictating, you know, modern society. Right. Right. Uh, you, you can change the constitution. There are ways to do that. Um, but it's difficult um, and there's too much public support for most of these amendments there's too much public support for the first amendment which guarantees free speech yeah too much support for the second amendment which obviously guarantees right to bear arms so they, they cannot change it um, in you know in, in, in the way in the established way that it's meant to be changed um, it's quite insane how these amendments are pretty much like the Ten Commandments, the Bible. Hmm. Thing. Yeah, yeah, pretty much, pretty like, much. It actually amuses me how seriously they take it. There's nothing like this in Australia. No, no. Uh, but in Australia, you can still change. The, we don't have a Bill of Rights like they do, but you can still change the Constitution of Australia via a referendum. Oh, yeah, okay. Right, but it's just... It's hard to do that though, but it's not as hard as it is in America. Right. Okay. So, so clearly the, the, um, the Supreme court in America has a lot of power, right? So yes. 
what is the, the problem here as in like in current affairs? So the problem is basically this. When it's a technic when it's a completely technocratic role, right? Your job is just to interpret what the constitution says. And so your politics don't matter. Mm-hmm. Right. And no one says, oh, this judge is conservative, this judge is liberal. No one cares. That's basically the case in Australia. So in Australia, they essentially have the same power, but they have a different culture. You don't have a culture in Australia in the high court of legislating from the bench. Right. So if a question came up about same sex marriage, which actually it did a couple of years ago, they said, well, sorry, the constitution does not guarantee that. <laughs> in <laughs> fact, it guarantees the opposite. Um, and so when Canberra tried to change the law um, for same-sex marriage, the Supreme Court actually had to strike that law down because it was unconstitutional. Right, okay. Right, even though probably the majority of people in that court did agree with same-sex marriage, right? But it didn't matter because that's not what the Constitution says. And if you want to change it, you have to change the law. Uh, you have to change, um, uh, yeah, you, you have to change federal law. And so that's why the referendum was held. Well, the plebiscite, but yeah, yeah. The referendum changes the constitution. The plebiscite is just um, a way for the federal government to understand what people's views are. Yeah. They didn't have to actually go along with the plebiscite. It's, it was not binding. Oh, okay. But whereas referendum is binding. But it didn't matter because it was, like, functionally, it was politically binding. Like, you could not ignore the results of the plebiscite without no, the like, political so side. Much- you get like so much public backlash. Yeah, there'd be too much public. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So anyway, um, in so Australia, they are powerful, but they um, it, there is not that culture of judicial activism there, whereas there is in America. So the issue is um, that right now in America, things are very politicized, even in the Supreme Court, which is not meant to be political as such, or at least it's not meant to be partisan, <clears throat> right? you're not meant to look at a judge and say he's liberal, he's conservative, <laughs> right? But they do that in America because they have to, because it matters, whereas it shouldn't matter. So that's a problem because um, it takes away from the credibility of the court, which is extremely it's problematic. Biases. Because it's perceived as biased, which it is, right? Well, I mean, yeah, because it's five to four, right? There, there can never be a tie break. Yeah, it, I, yeah. Um, but it used to be five to four the other way for many decades, mm-hmm. right? But the point isn't whether the conservatives have the majority, whether the liberals have the majority. The The issue is that the fact that it's viewed that way um, correctly, right, uh, detracts from the credibility of the court. Um, and the issue is that the Supreme Court is meant to be the thing that keeps the legislature and the executive in check. So there's a division yeah. of powers between your legislature, that's the Congress and Senate. Right, but you your can't do that when you have biases. You, well, you can't do that if, if, if you don't have credibility, or right? Because you have a situation where this could happen. And this, is, this um, potentially could happen very soon where the court makes a decision. And then a couple of years later, when the court has changed, that decision is reversed. Really? That can happen. They're allowed to reverse each other's decisions. Whoa. Okay. Right? Because, yeah, well, because there's no limit on their power, exactly. Why can't they do that? Um, That probably hasn't been, I think that has actually been done. Um, And it's likely to be done in the future. 
Um, and so now they have to make these distinctions between a precedent and a, and a so-called super precedent. Right, so, so what's the consequence of this? Like surely there's some edge case where, you know, there's gonna be some profound, you know, thing that's gonna come down. Okay, yeah, so the issue is this. It means that there is now an incentive for court packing. So what is court packing? Right now you have nine justices. Mm -hmm. It's a lifetime appointment. When one of them dies, you have eight justices, but you have an, a vacant spot that you need to fill. Yeah. Now, there's not actually some constitutional limit on the amount of justices you can appoint. I knew that. So Purely a convention, a tradition, right? Yeah. But it's an important tradition because it maintains the credibility of the court. Right, if liberals might have been, you know, winning the majority for the last like, you know, 20, 30 years or something. You know, now the conservatives are winning the majority. It's sort of like that kind of needs to be respected. Um, you can't just increase the numbers. Um, so this actually happened when the Supreme Court was newly formed, or like when you know they were trying to um, gain power essentially. So. I still can't remember which president this is. I'll, I'll figure this out. But basically before, um, you know, he was evicted of his term, right? He essentially signed off like a lot of, you know, papers, like signing, you know, off orders, you know, judges. executive orders. Yeah. So it's actually happened. And that's pretty much kind of like the root of how the Supreme Court rose to power, right? It was pretty, pretty much this guy um, who was appointed um, in the Supreme Court within the same political party in order, like, of the, the former presidents, right? So that the president can still preserve, you know, his power, you know, through the Supreme Court, right? Because he couldn't do it through, the, you know, the other uh, means, like the Senate and stuff, right? And so the new, what the new president did was um, he saw these stacks of papers, like, that was signed off, and obviously it's still binding um, on his desk, right? But, you know, obviously he kind of saw what's going on and chose to kind of like dismiss it, right? And, you know, not hand out these, you know, these executive orders um, to, you know, appoint this guy as a judge, right? Because it's obviously not in his favor. Um, and then, you know, one of the guys kind of realized this because he was just like, dude, where's my piece of paper? certifying that I am a judge, right? And so he kind of storms to, you know, the Supreme Court and they had this problematic kind of like, you know, situation where, you know, if they don't challenge the presence, then there is this precedence that's going to occur where the Supreme Court doesn't have the power. Like basically, you know, the president is above the ball, right? And, you know, there's also, you know, the formal like situation, right? Where, you know, like how are they gonna try and prove that, you know, the president is doing all of this, right? So that's kind of like how, you know, this whole, you know, Supreme Court situation kind of like got built up. Uh, but I was you know, the exact um, thing, like, like these guys called Radiolabs did a really awesome job on this. That's very interesting. Yeah, send me the link. Um... But 
Yeah, but court packing is um I don't think it's ever actually been done before in the history of America. Really? Yeah. So in other words, increasing the number of justices above the current number. Right. It's, it's only been threatened <clears throat> once, which was during the reign of FDR back in what the thirties, forties. Um, but it didn't happen. Now here's here's the thing. Because you know your Supreme Court justice has a lifetime appointment, and because they have so much power, and because you have a culture of judicial activism, what that means is that the reigning political party is incentivized, if they're not in agreement with the court, to pack the court. Right. So, suppose Joe Biden wins the election. Mm-hmm. He knows he's down five four in the Supreme Court, and he and he knows it, it might be it could be like that for decades. Who knows? So what does he do? He picks two or three liberal judges and he appoints them to Supreme Court. So now there are instead of nine, there are twelve, for example, yeah. Supreme Court justices, and now they have the majority. The second court packing happens, it's over. It's over the Supreme Court will no longer be able to um, be a check and balance against the power of the legislature and the, and the executive. The reason being that if at any time the Supreme Court is not ruling the way the president and the legislature want, well, they can just appoint five or 10 new <laughs> justices. Why not? Right? Wait, but why now? Like, why couldn't... You know, former presidents have done that. They could have, but they didn't. They respect the tradition okay. um, because they understood the consequences. Right. But why is there like this on edge sentiment going on? Like what's different now? What's different now is that America has not been this divided in a very long time. America has not been this polarized politically in a very long time. You have people now who are beginning to call for violence Mm -hmm. you have people now who are seriously talking about civil war right so you have a situation in america that's extremely uh, explosive you have two groups of people who hate each other a lot who really really hate each other um so so what's the what's the cause of this divide like how did we get so polarized in the first place? I don't know how to answer that question. <laughs> I couldn't tell you. People do have the tendency to cluster politically, and we've mm-hmm. seen that all throughout history, right? But if you're asking for the reasons why they're clustering in this way now so aggressively, and this has probably been taking place over the last couple of decades, I don't know. That like, is, uh, could it be the media? Could it be just reinforcements? The media obviously has played a big role in the clustering effect. Um, I think social media has too. So in social media, all you, you can basically restrict yourself to hearing the, the voices you want to hear. I mean, Your, social media algorithms does that, right? Like mm. the recommender systems are run by machine learning algorithms. Mm. just pretty much reinforces you know your view this is how like you get into this you know never-ending feedback loop 
um, you know, it's resulted in people believing in, you know, the, like, the earth is flat pretty much because you, you see something like resonates, you know, in terms of the earth is flat, right? That's, you know, not that extreme, right? Maybe it's just like you know, curiosity, right? Like why is the earth, you know, round or flat, right? And then, you know, you just get into this huge social media rabbit hole. Like they just pretty much pump out something a little bit more radical and a little bit more radical. And soon you're just in this whole like you know, cluster loop of, you know, flat earthers. That's interesting. Um... Do you think that there's a financial incentive for social media companies to have these algorithms? Oh, absolutely. Because at the end of the day, it's it's really profitability, right? Like they want to maximize your attention. And the only way to do that is to evoke some emotion out of you. And, you know, we've seen more, more and more, I'd say, you know, all these really radical sorts of videos or, you know, comments that kind of like just, you know, rile you up. And, you know, it's definitely you know, making you stick on the platform for longer, right? And, you know, I don't know if you know this, but you know the whole Hunter Biden situation, right? <clears throat> mm. Yeah, so basically Twitter and Facebook decided to make the decision to basically... Take that down. Yeah. And so, so like at first you have social media, you know, making these runoff algorithms that's just reinforcing your own opinions, right? Just for these profit incentives. So they are kind of like a, both a, you know, distributor of information and also kind of like, you know, almost a curator of information as well, right? Like, even though it's kind of like outsourced to the users, right? But when you're choosing what to show to people, you're kind of like, you know, the writers in some sense, right? And so if you're now, you know, applying censorship, that's very problematic, right? Because mm. it's kind of like violating the, like, probably like one of those, you know, code of conducts of, say, journalism, where, you know, you're trying to just actively censor, like, point of view like dude that's like not any different to what the chinese government is doing it's interesting you say that um in particular when you talk about code of conduct for journalists i think that's actually a big thing that has changed over the last few decades which Mm -hmm. is that journalists no longer really see themselves as trying to disseminate information in a reasonably neutral way yeah they actually see themselves as political activists who are using their platform in order to affect uh, the world, affect government, affect policy. Yeah. Um, and, they, and they think that's the righteous and moral thing to do. Um, so I think that's definitely been a big culture change. I yes. can't, not sure what's driving it. So, yeah, so uh, journalists, I think, are held to some standards, right? Like they can't actively disseminate false information, for instance, right? Like, I'm not, like, I know there's this code, like this, there's a law in the internet. I've actually listened to this podcast recently about this whole thing where essentially what's going on is um, for the open internet to work, right? 
you need to kind of like ensure that, you know, people can freely post things, right? Without any, I, I don't know, like copyright infringement or like, you know, like liabilities and, and whatnot, right? But, you know, certain organizations are, you know, obviously not held to that standard because, you know, they have, you know, best interests. They are actively, you know, in the distribution business, right? So, you know, there needs to be, you know, fair conduct, you know, with any operating uh, means. But what social media have, like platforms like Facebook, right, has been able to take advantage of is going, hey, I'm not the one writing, you know, the things on Facebook, right? You know, humans on our platforms are the ones writing it, right? So for the longest time, right, they are not bounded by these, you know, conducts per se, or these laws, right? And so they've been able to, you know, rampantly, mm. you know, drive their algorithms essentially, right? And, you know, it, it makes sense, right? Because initially, you know, you're just purely doing for engagement, right? But now it's gotten to the point where, you know, they are not, you know, acting as distributors anymore, right? They are, you know, actively, you know, trying to, you know, censor things and, and maybe push certain agendas on you, certain biases, right? And they haven't been able to be liable for those things, right? And so I do think, you know, there's going to be a radical shift in the way, you know, how these um, social media companies are going to be, you know, judged on in the future, in the near future. Yeah, right. You bring up a good point, which is how it originally started off as just chasing profitability, right? Yeah. Just basically siphoning people off into certain echo chambers, mm-hmm. um, which obviously makes people feel better about themselves, makes them more likely to use social media, um, and therefore obviously makes these companies more profitable. Um, but now they're so powerful, they can really affect the way people think. Yeah. Um, they're not liable for disseminating of false information or biased information. Um, and so you have a situation where, number one, they're able to influence the views of people uh, probably too much. Mm-hmm. And number two, they are aggressively clus- uh, clustering people. Yeah. Which I think is a big reason why America the American political situation is so much more volatile today. Yeah. I mean, the algorithm is literally called clustering. Right, right, right. Um, right, like you literally, you know, circle in like these groups, right? Label them as to, you know, what this typical demographic is and push them to one of the clusters. Right. Um, I think that's a big problem. Uh, yeah. I think it all comes down to this. When you have a new technology, right? there are always unintended consequences of that technology. The larger the paradigm shift, uh, the more potential unintended consequences there are. And then human culture, um, you know, human society, you know, etiquette and manners have to catch up in order to regulate um, how these technologies are used. And so we're in a situation right now where it, there has been no, that catch up has not happened yet. Yes. So right. there's been like technological innovation, but not social innovation. That's right. So for example, um, you have people using their phone all the time, mm-hmm. right? In the future, I can imagine a situation where, um, you know, you have, where it's maybe not culturally acceptable to use your phone in certain situations. 
right? Where an etiquette has developed around the way you use your phone, right? These days, you can just pick up your phone and start messaging someone um, when you're standing around with people. Maybe in the future, that won't be the case, right? Mm. Uh, there'll, there'll be a little bit more reg- social regulation on how these technologies are used because the, the kind of chaos and anarchy you have now um, is really destructive um, for people. So I think um, culture eventually catches up. But right now we're in, in some sense, the Wild West where there are no social regulations, there is no etiquette, and there's certainly not very much government regulation. Yeah, well, I think, I think you know, there's no, I'd say there's like no problem with these firms, you know, chasing profit, right? Like trying to drive these echo chambers and reinforcing cycles. But, you know, they should face the risk of, you know, being, you know, prosecuted for, you know, their actions. And currently there is, you know, no such threat. Like they pretty much are able to do whatever the hell they want, right? Which is problematic. And so they, there definitely should be, you know, social consequences of, you know, these things. And, you know, it might tank, I'd say the American GDP because, you know, like the fan companies, the big tech, social media companies do dominate, you know, the top of the S&P 500, right? So <clears throat> I reckon this is why, you know, there hasn't been this, this social regulation coming to force, you know, readily because, you know, there is direct economic consequence, right? But I think it's necessary, right? You need, you need these companies to be held liable. Mm. And it's also gonna foster, you know, new innovation. You know, perhaps there's a better way to do this. Do you, Ryan, I agree with you, but there's a risk of, you know, regulation not catching up soon enough. And there could be big consequences for that. I'm not sure if you know this, but I think it's in America or some other Western country. Like I'm not surprised if it's America. 100, 150 years ago, something like that, <clears throat> where basically... Um, it was legal to basically like kill your spouse if you oh, really? if you walked in on them um, cheating on you. Interesting, right? So what would happen is if a husband suspects that his wife is cheating on him, he will engineer a situation in which he says, "Oh, honey, I'm going to be gone for the next like you know a couple of days." She's like, "Oh, okay, honey, you know, have fun." And basically, he's not going anywhere and he just waits until he sees some man enter his house or whatever. And then... Right, as an excuse. Yes. And then he Mm -hmm. rushes in, sees them in the act and then just blows their brains out. Nice. That was legal. Why was that legal? The reason why it was legal was because it was already happening. (laughs) (laughs) It was already happening, right? Like this stuff was happening all the time. And then the government was like, oh my gosh, there's so much violence. We need to uh, we need to control this. If if this sort of gratuitous violence is happening in an unsanctioned manner, that will destroy the credibility of our ability to govern. So they had two choices: they could either clamp down on it, or they could sanction it within certain legal parameters. And they chose to go with the latter because it was mm. easy to do that. The point is this: um, clearly, in that case. Uh, the law had uh, not caught up quickly enough to what was going on, right? I mean, after they had sort of 
taking legal control of that situation over the years they were then able to do away with that law yeah and then and then and then you you, did, you no longer had you know angry husbands walking in on their wives hearing them shooting them to bits right um but clearly there had been a problem there maybe for several decades before the government was like crap we need to actually um take control of this situation when the government does uh is faced with a situation like that um, where there needs to be some sort of regulation, some sort of laws to, to address some scenario and they don't act quickly enough, um, there can be some pretty major consequences. In this case, mm-hmm. gratuitous violence. And I think the same is true with social media companies. So the government is either going to regulate them because the thing is, there's an ace, an important asymmetry here. And that is that you tend to, who are in control of these institutions, politically speaking? Uh, no one. Well, officially, no. But, in ter- but what, kind of, what kind of politics <clears throat> are you going to find in the Silicon Valley? Um, capitalism. Like democracy? Yes and no. As in, like, who, 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 like, what political party do you think most of these people are registered? Oh, as, as in, like, as in, like, the identities of you know the heads and the yeah. Oh yeah, okay. So Democrats. They're all Democrats, right? Um, and the majority of the employees are also Democrats. Certainly, almost all the executives, almost all the CEOs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, right? Yeah. Um, it's a little bit weird to be honest, because <laughs> Democrats are not necessarily the most pro-capitalistic people around, but that's that's just the way it is now they are the ones controlling social media etc cetera, etc cetera. these people they're also controlling banks they're also controlling like media industry like hollywood right right well banks is sort of okay yeah, banks are a bit nebulous and, and and finance as well it's a bit more um it's a bit more mixed right but specifically yeah, tech absolutely. right mm-hmm. is overwhelmingly um progressive and so there's an asymmetry here where it's not just that clustering is happening. It's also that a particular group of people, you know, e.g. conservatives um, and people with other, you know, less popular political views feel that their views are being tra- downtrodden um, and they feel like their um, ideas are not um, being given a chance to proliferate in the way that they might on a neutral platform. Mm. So there is one side that feels particularly wronged, right? So it goes like this. Either the government finds a way to make some reasonable laws to govern these institutions or else violence is going to happen towards them, right? If if someone regulates the social media companies, I can totally see a California exit, (laughs) just like Brexit. Right, well... I mean, it's already happening right now, but uh, that, is, that is going to, oh, that would be hugely, that would be civil war material right there. Yeah. But like, if you know how, like everyone's fleeing California right now, so who's going to be there to <laughs> do it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but the thing is, if, if no regulation happens, well then it's only a matter of time before, you know, some pissed off crazy goes into Facebook headquarters and starts shooting everybody up. <laughs> like we're not that far away from those acts of political terrorism 
um, the point is that there isn't really a choice. Is it going to be regulation by order or regulation by chaos? Yeah. Because the current situation I don't think is tenable. You, you can't have a people feeling like they're being downtrodden and not heard. And you can't have these institutions here with so much power over what people see. Yeah, I mean, I think the whole Black Lives like movement has basically given precedence to all this violence. Right, right, because they've they've already seen it, right? Like, you know, your average conservative opens the TV, sees riots, yeah. sees them burning down a police precinct with zero consequences. What do you think is going to happen? Like, you, you cannot have so much hatred between two groups of people without violence erupting at some point. Mm. Violence always begins with hatred. Yeah, it's it's actually really amusing how 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 much the Americans hate one another in terms of the political party. But the thing is, it's all in the abstract. The, when they're actually presented with a person whose political views they don't know, they treat them quite nicely. Yeah, politely. Right. You know, they hate conservatives in the abstract or they hate liberals in the abstract, but they don't necessarily hate particular people who happen to be liberal or particular people who happen to be conservative. Yeah. That's what I found. And like, yeah, it, it's, it's more about being in love with the idea is that the image of being, you know, democratic or Republican that they align with or don't align with, which is really odd. It's, it's almost like a religion of some sort. Um, it, it is pretty much like they um, all have their own commandments i'd say you know every every commandment is like polarizing to one another you know it's pro-guns or anti-guns pro-life anti-life yeah 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 the issue is that it's funny you bring up religion it's interesting i'm not sure if you know but the root the latin of the word religion means to bind together yeah, I was aware of that. Yeah. So, and that's sort of what religion did back in the day. It bound a populace together. So before a populace was bound by a shared language or shared culture or shared geography, it was bound by a shared religion. Yeah, because like right. as humans, you need religion to keep some unity. Right. Right. Um, and so what we're seeing is, so in America, obviously it's a pluralistic culture with multiple religions. So conventional religion doesn't really work to bind people together because there is no shared religion anymore. Right. No. So, so they need something to fill that spot. Um, so in America, you do have a quite strong civic religion. That's what I call it. So this is where you have, you know, they take their, you know, armed um, troops, their soldiers, they take them very seriously. They honor them, they respect them. They have these events that they take very seriously. Um, sort of like how we take, you know, we have that, that minute of silence for Remembrance Day and we have Anzac yeah. Day and whatnot. So they have that, but it's, it's much more extreme, right? I agree. Yeah. That's their civic religion. But what we're seeing now is their civic religion is is not really strong enough to bind America together anymore. Um, in particular, the liberals have kind of been slipping free from the from the bounds of the civic religion. 
yeah. where they're not they're not so into celebrating the troops anymore. Or celebrating the, the armed forces. In order to unify, like unify a group of people, you need like another entity or enemy to go against, right? Like mm, mm. civil civil group, like like you know, like who are you going to go against? Like I don't know, like Iraq. Dude, no one in America is going to like be on board for that. Mm. Um, like maybe if China like is a threat to America, then all of America will be like bounded together. Mm. But like. You know, in times of peace, then the next best thing is you just get one half of America to deck it out with another half of America. Dude, that's actually a pretty good observation, right? Like in times of peace, if you don't have some basis for unity, mm-hmm. then you're going to find a basis for unity with a particular group um, where your identity is basically being against another group. Yeah, that's pretty much it. In times of in times of war, you don't have that issue because you can find a shared identity in being against those other people. Yeah, like I guarantee you, if China declares war on America, like it never happen. Democrats, they're just going to be like, "We are Americans." Yeah, I agree with that. That's hundred percent true. Um, you know what's really interesting? Yeah, what? They've done some studies, and it's like when they found that in wartime, mm-hmm. the number of suicides, the number of people who uh, say that they're depressed, um, the number of mental illnesses basically goes down. I'm not surprised about that because there's a common goal and, and like right. purpose in life. I feel right. like humans need purpose. Yes. And a, a war is a very, I guess, easy, if extremely destructive and costly way to do that. Um, it's very, very counterintuitive. I agree. It is counterintuitive. I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, after people return, there's not a spike in mental illnesses. 100% like, like, there is. Afterwards, like PTSD and <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Afterwards, you have to pay. You have to pay. Yeah. <laughs> but in the meantime, right, when a country is defending itself against another country, there is a kind of unity there that you can see in the statistics of the you know, mental illness and other things like that, which I find to be insane i think that's insane um but i don't think that's going to happen i don't think china's going to go to war against america i mean they are kind of subtly it's more of an economic war like that's right it's, it's not a direct war you know right do you know why it's, it's just not worth it like this is it. like, there's these nukes right like it's, it's like game theory, right? You either, you know, you don't blow each other up or you both blow each other up, right? There's no, like, you know, state where only China blows up America. And even then, that's not good and useful for China because what China wants is the land, right? Wants mm. the resources, wants mm. the intellectual property. There's no mm. point in, like, winning a war where you just devastate, you know, just a whole continent. <laughs> exactly. And that's the reason why wars between superpowers just don't happen anymore. Um, and they haven't happened for a very long time. They used to fight proxy wars, but now I think China realizes even that's not economically worth it. Well, now the wars is purely economic, right? So you see America trying to, you know, bring all manufacturing back in-house into America and, you know, trying to, um, you know, remove its, like, needs um, towards and reliance to China, right? Mm. This is pretty much what Trump is pushing with all his tariffs. Like people are, you know, complain that, you know, oh, Trump is 
um, what like causing economic like, chaos by you know not letting the farmers you know eat or whatever, right? But no, like this is just a long-term play to secure America for the future. Mm-hmm. Right. It's 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 funny. Um, a lot of people, some people, talk about the importance of free trade and how. Um, they use the idea of comparative advantage to sort of prove that free trade is economically optimal, which is true, but mm-hmm. it doesn't take into account um, certain terror risks like dumping um, mm-hmm. or, or war, right? Like capitalism is predicated on peace, right? The second yeah. war enters into the equation, yeah, um, everything changes. So the classic example, probably the quintessential example is how in both world wars, uh, Japan faced famines. Mm-hmm. And the reason why is because it's very costly for Japan to grow its own food. Yeah. Um, so, you know, when they were industrializing, they outsourced all of its crops. It's very efficient economically. Mm-hmm. But then its supply chains got messed up during the wars. So now, until mm-hmm. this day, Japan grows all of its own rice. Extremely inefficient, right? But yeah. it's not just about efficiency. You have to balance efficiency with risk, particularly with tail risk. And so um, I think that tariffs do have um, a use. Um, and I agree with yes. your assessment. And, um, and also you've got to realize that all the outsourcing, right? It wasn't really for the opportunity cost, right? It wasn't really for that. It was just a pure global arbitrage in the sense that Production was cheap. That's all. So like taking advantage of like what China's like slave labor. Yeah, pretty much. Like, <laughs> like pretty much what India is right now is what China back in the days, mm. right? Or like some other you know um, up and coming you know Southeast Asia country like um, right Malaysia or something. Right. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um. But the, the end result of all this is that future conflicts between superpowers are almost always going to be economic in nature. Yeah. I don't really think you're going to see much armed conflict. And I think especially between two superpowers, um, because it's just too, it's, it's too bloody risky and so costly and expensive. And it's just not worth it. Right now, defensive abilities are by far more powerful than offensive. Yes, um, and, and the ability to warfare. Dissemin- disseminate chaos, I think. Yeah, and and of course, and you have nukes. Nukes are the ultimate peacekeeper. I agree. Like nukes right. are just there as a deterrent, right? Like I, I truly believe the war, like where the wars are going to be like fought is pretty much on control. Like, how much can you disseminate, you know, misinformation in the foreign states? How much can you create chaos so that they self-implode? Um, and, you know, other means of artificial intelligence warfare. It's a different kind of chaos. Yeah, I agree. But, a different kind of warfare. But is there going to be conflict, like actual warfare in the future? I think there will be. But here's the thing. I think it's going to be civil as in like I, a civil war, too. because you can't, like America, right, for example, it's not going, it's not about to invade Australia or any of its allies, right? 
um, and so and, and it's not going to start a war with China, with India, with Russia, with these superpowers. Um, maybe Iran or something, but even that is, you know. I don't know. We'll see how that one goes. I don't want that to happen, but it could happen. But the point is that mm-hmm. whenever a country is like big enough, strong enough, is the US going to want to mess with it? Even though it's the most powerful military, is it going to want to mess with it? The answer is no. So if it's not going to mess with any countries, any of these large countries outside itself, and if these wars in the Middle East are getting less and less popular, the only people you have to fight against are the people that you hate next to you. Yeah, right. And, and also, I mean, that's probably what China is realizing as well, right? They probably just want America to fight each other. Like right. China wants to be in bed with one of the, the sides, one of the political sides, probably the Democrats, not too sure which one. But yeah, probably just like wants to, you know, whistle some, some stuff in the air so that, you know, the Democrats hate Republicans even more. Maybe the, the Chinese government has leverage. And yeah. Yeah. For civil chaos. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what I would say the chances of a civil war happening are. Um, I'd say like it's maybe 5%. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'd say 5 to 10%. Um, oh, actually, nah, off that, but, like 100 years, I think a bit too long. I'd say 5 to 10% in the next 50. Yeah, I, I actually concur. I concur. Um, I think that's an absurd. So I think that's a, probably an accurate estimation, but I also think that's absurdly high. <laughs> No, but you've got to realize. As in, that's bad. Like, you know, that's you've got to realize bad. how, like, this is unprecedented. Like, we've been the longest period of peace, just no wars for so long. Well, okay, by like, you know, these, you know, Middle Eastern countries, skirmishes and everything, right? But yeah, the last great war was like, what, 50 years ago? Like, yeah. Korean like, War, probably. Like, that's pretty... Or Vietnam, Vietnam, maybe. Yeah, like, one of them, right? Like, it's not that long ago. Mm. Right? Like, in all of our history before then, right, we've just had wars after wars after wars, right? It's just just a cycle. Mm. So, I would say even 5 to 10% is maybe, like, really low for a 50-year period. Could be. I think if Joe Biden wins and packs and packs the court, I reckon that would be really bad. Like that percentage of, 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 of like the possibility of a civil war breaking out just skyrockets if conditional on him packing the court. Um, I don't know what happens if Trump gets in again. Um, I think maybe there's just another four years of the same. Of, of liberals slowly getting even more and more angry than they currently are. Yeah, probably. Like, but, I mean, if Trump gets in, it's pretty predictable. Yeah. Like, you'll get more tax cuts. You know, China will, like, America will reduce its reliance on China, stuff like that. Hmm. If Biden gets in and doesn't pack the court, I'm not sure what happens then either. Um, maybe it's just the conservatives that get pissed off and angry and whatnot, but. But that's not really a flashpoint. Yeah. But if but if you get in and packs the court, that's a flashpoint right there. That's some it, serious crap. Here's the thing: like, I don't know what to do with investments if he does pack the court. Because Dude. was actually good for investments because you know production is like at a way higher capacity. Really? Yeah. Like 
like in all the wars, right? Like there's been economic booms because governments like basically print money to basically pay all the companies to make, you know, resources. So essentially what happens is the value of money devalues, but equities rise because of the increase in production um, demands. So basically in some sense, you're taking away from future economic growth to supply current economic growth. Yes, pretty much. So after war, you suffer stagflation pretty much. <laughs> but during, okay, that's interesting. Okay, good. Because, um, <laughs> but, but civil war is a bit different because, you know, oh, that's too destructive. Like, like, yeah. Cause like, if it's like against something else, right. You're printing money for your own nation and is unified, but with civil war, I'm not too sure because yeah, it's a different, it's a different ball game, bro. Yeah. So like, I'm not too sure how, how feel about that. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'm going to short the crap out of Silicon Valley. Pretty reasonable. Okay, because 100% in the early days of conflict or maybe just before conflict starts, right? Someone's going to like, you know, shoot Jack Dorsey in the head or, or Zuck. <laughs> like, honestly, that's like, going to happen. Honestly, I'm starting to take profits out of Silicon Valley, because I suspect, well, okay, like the the major social media companies at least, because I suspect that there's going to be, you know, within the next few years, there's going to be, you know, legislation against them. Right, right, right. Yeah, I think that's that's, that's pretty wise. Um, right. Like, Valley for sure. Yeah. If that happens. Well, I'm not going to short them. Like, I think shorting them is dumb. But too risky? Yeah, it's too yeah. risky. If, if Biden gets in, I, I think there might not be um, regulations against them. Oh, the chance, I don't think the chance of that would be too high. Yeah, because Democrats, right. They're not going to kill their own companies. No, they'll be stupid. Yeah. But what What do you think, though, like, what do you think the, the chances of, of Biden winning are? Because right now all the polls have him up. I just looked at Betfair. It's mm. it seems pretty high, like something like I don't know, sixty something percent or something. Of of Biden winning. Yeah, um, like something high, right? And I I disagree. Okay. I'm closer to a coin flip. Yeah, I've, I've I've oh yeah, like like Minnie were talking about the other day. Oh no, yeah. even without Rob's like you know talk, like I still think it's a coin flip. Like yeah. Rob doesn't think it's a coin flip. Oh, Rob doesn't think it's a coin flip. No, I think it's a coin flip, but he thinks I'm, I'm. He's probably less optimistic than most progressives are at the moment, because mm. uh, he, because obviously he knows a little bit about probability. But I think he thinks the chances are of Biden getting in are pretty high. Um, I don't know. I think it's pretty unpredictable. Well, it, okay, it depends on the polls, right? Um. Like I haven't been tracking the polls, so I don't have full conditional information. Right? Problem is, yeah. But traditionally, yeah. I'd say it's it's pretty like even if one person has an edge, right? It's like 55, 45. Mm, mm. Something ridiculous like 65, 70 to 30. Mm, mm. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is I think there's something weird about the polls. I mean, when like in 2016, all the polls were wrong, right? It, it seems they are very inaccurate for some reason. Yes. 
So uh, part of the reason might be something actually systemic. I mean, I, I just don't believe that there was only a 10 or 20% chance of Trump winning in 2016. Oh, no, that, that was definitely... I think that's full of crap, right? Like, I definitely put some money on Trump. Oh, yeah. <laughs> At that odds, yeah. Because yeah, right. I was like, dude, this is... Like, as much as the media is harping on, you know, Trump being, you know, this senile old man, you know, that's not going to be a president. Dude, 10 to 20% is like stupid odds. Stupid odds, yes. Um, so I think there is something systemic going on, which uh, some people are calling the silent Trump voter effect. Mm. So that's where a Trump voter is asked who they want to support and they're too embarrassed to say Trump. Right. And so there is actually a systemic, not, a, not, not just a random, but like a systemic miscalculation that's going on. Do you think this um, is because of social media? Hundred percent. Social media, uh, just normal media and conventional media in America. Because I'd say social media is very democratic, language, right? And so, you know, they probably are, you know, feeling some sense of guilt, or you know, being anti-democratic. And so when they get polled, it's like, yeah, you know, I, I don't like this Trump guy as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's just unclear how big that effect will be, and whether it will be enough to bridge the gap that's currently being spelled out by the poll yeah um that's interesting we'll see when is the when is it uh i think in a week's time like i honestly haven't been following this like i think it's but i haven't (laughs) it's less than a week yeah i'm pretty sure let's see election day it's i know it's less than a week oh it's third november bro yeah it's oh it's next tuesday bro yeah they have a special event, which is like get together and like, you know, give a running commentary. All right, sounds good. Let's do it. Tune in next Tuesday for our next podcast. Also, please leave a review on your podcast provider. Thank you.